Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner, and this is a show for you to help you understand your money. We talk about the stock market. We talk about financial planning issues. We look at what's going on in Washington, D.C. that might impact what's going on with your money. And then finally, I give you an opportunity to ask questions that I answer on the air. You can submit those to my Facebook page, which is Ask Peggy. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update. And I want to take a little bit longer view of the market today than we do on the weeks when I just tell you what happened for that calendar week. Because we just ended the second quarter of 2018, and I'd like to look at where we've been for this year as well as this quarter. And what we find is that the second quarter was actually better in most cases than the first quarter was for the stock market. So in the first quarter, in the second quarter, rather, we went up 3.4% in the S&P 500, which puts the year to date at 2.59%. So for the last six months overall, the S&P 500, remember, that's the largest measure of American stocks. It's the 500 biggest stocks. By virtue of their size, they create the S&P 500. So if one of them starts not doing as well, it gets dropped out of the S&P periodically, and the 500th largest stock would go in in its place. So it's a very good measure about how large companies are doing in our country. And so far, year-to-date, we're up 2.59%. So if that continues on course, and we have no real reason to believe it would or it wouldn't, but it would have our annual return this year a little bit over 5%. That's low from the long-term average, but remember that last year was exceptional. And I've said before, you can't count on returns like what we had last year. They they just don't happen year over year. There's a reason the long-term average is 11%. 25% in a year is not sustainable. So it looks like we may do a little correcting of last year's gain if we continue on the way we currently are. Now, several things could impact that. If the trade wars really kick in, it might not be that good. If things settle down and there seems like there's a little less volatility in the markets, then it might be better. Remember, markets always look forward. So they've already priced in all of the deregulation. They've already priced in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act impact. So really, the market is, like I've said before, looking at what are you going to do for me now? And right now, it obviously doesn't think much because we're only up 2.5% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is the index we've all heard of, but really doesn't mean very much because it's an index of 30 stocks, not 500, is down less than a percent for the year. Now, it did gain 1.22% in the second quarter. So again, the second quarter was better for it. Real estate is up a little over 1% for the year. Gold is down about three and three quarters percent. The NASDAQ has been the real winner this year. It's up 10%, but 
But again, remember, you don't want to get into the same kind of crisis we got into in the dot-com boom, where you put all your money in the NASDAQ because it's a sector. And sectors can have all kinds of things influence them. So there's no reason to think the NASDAQ starts going down now that we're into the second half of the year. But there's also not great reason to think it continues to go up at the rate it has. So be cautious with sectors, any sector that you don't um, go crazy and put too much money in it. Oil is by far the biggest winner. Lots of reasons for that. It's up almost 25% for the year. Now, that's great for the oil companies. Not so great for those of us trying to put gas in our cars this summer. For states that are oil dependent, like Oklahoma, where I live, then it's pretty good for our state economy. But there's lots of reasons um, oil was really a little low, and so it's moved back into more of a normal range. I would be surprised if it kept going up at this rate. All things are possible, but really, I, I think probably your best bet on an oil investment is look at it like any other sector. Don't go wild and crazy. Talk to your certified financial planner practitioner before you put anything into your portfolio because they will understand your personal situation and you will understand your personal situation in ways I just can't. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and this is the Legislative Update. So the first issue I want to talk to you about today isn't really tremendously important, but the second one is. So I've been reading where there's an expectation that if the Democrats take the House in November, there will probably be additional retirement savings programs proposed um, next year so that it's easier for workers to save money. Some of these um, items are already kind of in the works the reason I'm not terribly enthusiastic about this is that can't just be from the House and become law. It would have to go through the Senate, which could be possible, but then would have to have a presidential signature to sign it into law. And I'm not sure I'm terribly confident that that would happen. Nevertheless, as legislative issues come up, if it's an issue after the elections, I will certainly let you know about it and let you know what's going on. Related to retirement savings, there's another kind of alarm bell that I'm not worried about, but for really different reasons. And that alarm bell has to do with recharacterizing retirement savings accounts to Roths. The term that I'm hearing used most often to describe this is Rothification, because we wouldn't want to just explain what something means. No, we have to have a clever word that nobody really understands. Rothification means you take your retirement money that's in pre-tax dollars and the government would have you convert it to a Roth all at once, I'm assuming, and pay the taxes. And that would put money into the government to pay for the shortfall that they created when they passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. 
I'm actually not worried about this either because I just don't think anything's going to happen on Capitol Hill. Terribly exciting between now and November. It seems like there's a lot of dithering about a lot of issues, but I really don't see them having the ability to pass this. And I don't believe if the Democrats take the House in November that it would be a Democratic priority. So it's something to watch. It's something to be aware of. Really, the problem that I see would be the implementation. If they did it over time or if they allowed you to fill your current tax bracket and like um, convert it to a Roth within five or 10 years, then people wouldn't get creamed on their taxes. But if all at once they make everybody convert all of their retirement savings into a Roth, it's going to throw you into an unbelievably high tax bracket if you've been a good saver. So it's there. I do keep hearing about it. I don't actually think it's going to happen. I'm not worried about it because of that, but it's on my radar, and I will certainly let you guys know if I see anything that looks like it's going to happen or anything that um, you might want to be aware of and then take any action you thought was appropriate. However, I do have a weird sleeper issue that came to my attention this week because I actually saw an article written about it this week. It happened back in April, the very end of April, and it has to do with the kinds of investments that a fiduciary can recommend or um, consent to, really, with their clients. So now remember that the legal definition of a fiduciary is someone who has to act in your best interest. And remember, I said it's a really concrete, substantial definition. This is why there's been all the war about it. However, what the Department of Labor passed, and I'm going to give you the information, and I'm going to put it on my um, Facebook Ask Peggy page as well. It's called Field Assistance Bulletin number 2018-01, or that, um, that abbreviates to FAB, for Field Assistance Bulletin, 2018-01. So this is obviously the first one that they've come up with in the calendar year of 2018. And it concerns ESG investments. ESG Investments stands for Environmental, Social, and Government Investments, or Governance Investments. So E is for Environmental, S is for Social, and G is for Governance. So Environmental Investments would typically be investments that were concerned with the environment, environmentally friendly investments. Um, The S stands for social. This would be commonly called in mutual fund world a socially responsible fund or socially responsible investing. Governance would concern legislation that might impact investments. So, for example, the Affordable Care Act could have an impact on the healthcare agency or the healthcare stocks. So, you'd want to look at, and I'm not going to say which way because I've heard arguments both ways, but no doubt when you come up with government sponsored healthcare, there could be an impact on healthcare stocks. So here's what's so weird about what they've done. 
The Department of Labor Bulletin says that if an advisor is a fiduciary, they can only take ESG factors into consideration when they directly, positively impact the bottom line of investments. And basically, the rule was written in the negative, where it said that a fiduciary has to look at the bottom line of the investment first, rather than being concerned whether it was ESG-friendly. So that means that there's a strong push towards encouraging clients away from environmental or social or governance, um, positive, neutral. You know, this would be anti-big oil, anti-tobacco, anti-lots of things that are socially responsible the way um, those funds define the term, moving clients away from that and then moving them to something more common like an S&P 500 index. But wait, there's more, because the party that does not like government interference has said it doesn't even matter in the investment policy statement of the organization that they want to favor socially responsible investing or, more specifically, ESG responsible investing. So the company can have said they want to do this, and DOL in this bulletin said the fiduciary still can't do it if it's not actually leading to a directly higher bottom line for the client. And since we always invest first and get gains later, it's almost impossible to do that. So basically the party that wants you wants governance out of everything wants to go ahead and say, all right, but you can't do this. You can't do socially responsible investing because if you do, then you're not following your fiduciary rule. There's absolutely no statement within the bulletin about what would happen if socially responsible investing did better. This is really new to me. I literally just found this two or three days ago, but I'm really disturbed by it. I'm very disturbed that once an advisor who's acting in a fiduciary capacity has a conversation with a client, that then that advisor can't follow the client's wishes because it doesn't tie to what the Department of Labor wants done, if I am reading this correctly. So I'm going to do more research on this. I'm, I'm really sort of fired up about this one. And let's back up a step because really I'm probably not the greatest champion of ESG causes. I've always seen stocks as a five-letter word for money. And I've always been encouraging of clients to look at returns rather than investing in your heart. If you've listened to me before, you know that although I think all the line of cancer mutual funds were were really thoughtful and they made you feel great investing in it, really you might be better off looking at a broader index-based fund rather than investing in the cancer drugs and then getting the return, using that return to make a donation to your favorite cancer institution. You know, that's not investment advice, but it is typically how I think. And I've had clients come to me wanting socially responsible investing. And so what I do is I lay out the S&P 500 and the socially responsible fund together. First, we look at what it does and doesn't happen. And if you are looking at doing socially responsible investing, 
I would encourage you to look at the holdings in whatever fund that you're buying to make sure that the way the fund defines socially responsible is the same way that you do. And then we make sure that, you know, that meets their needs, and then we compare it to the S&P 500, and I let the client make the decision. So I'm not a big pusher of socially responsible funds. I think it's my job to help the client make money in ways that they don't find morally reprehensible, but that really helps them meet their retirement needs. That's my job. What really upsets me here, if I'm reading this correctly, and maybe I'm not, and maybe these articles are slanted, so I'm going to do more research. I'm sure I'm going to talk to you more about this later, is I can't even allow a client to do that. And I have a huge issue with that. I have an absolutely giant, huge, great big issue with the fact that you're not allowing people to say, no, I don't want to own these things. This is the same DOL that said you don't have to be a fiduciary. I'm not superbly impressed right now with what's going on. So this is really something to watch. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to get back with you when I know more and will want to watch this space. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman, for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. So after kind of the depressing news of the last section, I want to give you some good news today, which is that you have what Albert Einstein called the most powerful force in the universe working to help you make money. And you've probably heard this before. Um, it's an old joke. I actually think he said it, although it's a little apocryphal. We're not sure. But Albert Einstein was supposedly talking about compound interest and how compound interest is more powerful in his mind even than those physics things that he did that kind of threw Newton on his head. So if it's that powerful, it's certainly worth a section of this show to talk about a little bit, make sure you understand it, make sure you see some areas where you might get a little derailed in ways that you don't understand. So compound interest is basically interest that is earned on the growth of the previous period. So let's assume that you bought an investment for $100. We're going to use easy math today. And that investment grew at 10%. So now at the end of the year, your investment is worth $110. If it grows at, uh, at 10% the next year, then you would earn $11 of interest not the 10 you had earned the year before because you would be earning interest or growth on the growth you'd already had. So at the end of two years, you'd have $121 rather than the $120 you would have at simple interest. So because those numbers are small and it's a very short period of time, it's easy to see how with more money and more time, that compounding effect really leads to higher returns and a larger portfolio value when you're ready for retirement than you might expect to have today. 
It is the compounding of the growth so that if you own an S&P index fund in your portfolio and it grows at 10% and you leave it in there, and then the next year it grows at another 10%, then you're going to be getting your growth on your growth. It's what lets us retire. It's what lets the rule of 72 work. Remember, the rule of 72 says if you take your rate of return times the number of years as a whole number, when those two numbers multiplied together equals 72, you have twice as much money as what you started with. So if you earned 8% a year for nine years, nine times eight is 72, you'd have twice as much money in your account as the day you started doing that. It's a nice way to estimate returns, but it is the compounding of that that lets it happen. And generally, it is the compounding of the growth of the investment where the magic really happens. That's why you'll hear people say that stocks are the best investment for the long term, because they tend to grow more. Now, anything that grows can also decline. So I didn't just say stocks are your best investment, but generally the growth of the market allows a greater rate of compounding than what you would have in just a bond fund or a bond itself. Now, investments grow and then they pay dividends or interest. Sometimes people reinvest the dividends of a stock or a fund and then those dividends go into the growth and they begin to compound as well. So if you have something and it pays a 5% dividend a year, you buy more shares of whatever that was with the 5% and then it allows that to keep growing. You do have to be careful, especially on things called dividend reinvestment funds, that you don't suddenly find yourself really overweight if you've reinvested a lot of the dividends. But on the same, on the same line, you'd have to be careful if it's grown a lot that you haven't suddenly gotten overweight in that holding. So it's always important to look at your portfolio to make sure that something hasn't suddenly gotten very out of alignment with the rest of the portfolio from a balancing perspective. For instance, with oil increasing at 25% and the S&P 500 up to 1.5%, if that were to keep going and you owned both investments, you would get terribly out of balance pretty quickly if that were a long-term if that were a long-term happening. It's probably not a long-term happening, but it helps you understand what you have to be careful of. Anytime things are growing through compounding, anytime you are reinvesting dividends, you have to be careful with that. Now, typically, like I said, that's the stock side. The bond side will maybe grow some in bond mutual funds in the right interest rate environment, especially in a falling interest rate environment. But typically, those are paying interest off to you. Typically, those are designed as income generators, and they're also simply just an asset class that typically responds different to market stress than the stock market does. So most people own bond funds for the income, they own it for the diversification, but that compound interest rule isn't going to be as effective on that side as it probably is going to be on the stock side. So you need to be careful, you need to understand what's going on. If you're watching things compound, you need to make sure that your investment portfolio has the allocation it needs to have. Talk to your certified financial planner practitioner about that. 
make sure that everything makes sense, and then sit back and enjoy watching the impact of compounding. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Remember, if you have a question you would like to ask me, you can go to my, web, uh, my Facebook page, which is Ask Peggy. Or if you want to learn more about me, you can go to my website, which is PeggyDoviak.com, and that's a good way to learn more of what I'm up to. So my question today is, Peggy, I have disability insurance available at work, but I've never really understood it. Can you explain it to me? Yes. If you have disability insurance at work, it's probably short-term disability. And that means that it goes into effect very shortly after you're disabled, and then it usually provides coverage for three to six months. Now, long-term disability picks up generally after six months, and it applies till retirement. And it's possible that your employer has provided both of those to you, but short-term is more common. Long-term tends to be more of a private purchase. It's only in place until what's considered normal retirement age, because remember, this is a policy that you get if you are disabled and you are unable to work. Now, the definition of work is different. There's own occupation, which means if you can't do what you do now, then you automatically get paid. So if you're a brain surgeon and you can't do brain surgery, your disability policy kicks in. There's modified OCH. OCH stands for occupation. Modified OCH says if you can do something that looks like your degree, but isn't exactly what you were trained in, then you're okay. But if you can't do that, then the policy pays. So maybe the brain surgeon could be a general practitioner doctor, and then he would only get the um, insurance payment after that. Or then finally, there's any occupation. Any occupation means if you can do absolutely anything, then the policy doesn't kick in. It's only if you are totally disabled and unable to hold a job. So now that our brain surgeon is disabled and is not able to work as a GP, but she can work at McDonald's, well, guess what? And any occupation policy doesn't cover because you can work at a fast food restaurant. This can be really critical because most of us develop a lifestyle around our expected income level. And so a drastic decrease in your salary not only causes the crisis of the disability, but it causes all kinds of financial crises as well. Now, in addition to that, a disability policy is only going to pay out about 60% of your income. So if you're used to making a lot of money, or even just a normal amount of money, you're only going to get 60% of that. So if you're a teacher, then it would be 60% of your salary. If you're that brain surgeon, it's 60% of the salary. So be careful with that. One final point to be aware of, if it's through a benefits program at work, if you pay the premium and you become disabled, the benefit comes to you income tax-free. However, if your employment, if your employer pays the premium, 
then you have to pay income taxes on those disability payments. So for many people, they're a lot better off paying the premiums themselves, maybe through some kind of a cafeteria plan, rather than letting the employer pay for it. Because if you're already at 60% of your income, and now you lose your taxes on top of that, that's a huge drain on the amount of money that you would get if something happened to you. And if you're disabled, especially at first and sometimes always, your costs have gone so far up. So you need to be very careful. So what does it cover? What kind of occupation? Who's paying the premium? Remember, it only runs until you're 65, and you want to be careful that it's only probably going to cover about 60% of the money you're used to receiving. That gives you at least some things to consider. Now you need to go talk to your certified financial planner to get the details on it. So I can't believe how fast the show went again. You know, the more I do these shows, the easier it gets. I love filling the time, and I will see you guys next week. Be prosperous. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.